Please turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. I want to bring this subject to you, which I have titled, Keeping the Lord's Day Holy. In Exodus chapter 20, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have the Ten Commandments. There's hardly a nation on the face of the earth that's not acquainted with the Ten Commandments. We used to see them routinely in our schools, public places, institutions, courts of law. Of course, that's been going. I don't think it's completely gone yet, but it's been going for a long, long time. And, you know, I might add a little commentary on that. Why is that? Well, we hear philosophical and even political reasons, you know, it's not constitutional, this stuff. But the real reason is that this law brings to us the knowledge of sin. So men want it away from their eyes, and it won't be to their good if they put away the law of God. But for you and me, we're going to see today that when we were born again, when we were saved, it was not for us to put away the moral law. And I'll explain that. So in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20, I just want to accent one commandment today. It's the fourth commandment. Where God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We know that means to be set apart. Over the years, and I want to say it's been fairly frequently, I've brought to you this short quotation from Alexis de Tocqueville on his observations of our country back in the first third, not quite the first half, of the 19th century. As many times as I bring it to you, it serves as a reminder of not just this book, but in particular of our American history, right? We're Americans. We need to look back to see here in this country how far we have actually fallen away from the principles that were set up for us and the laws and the ideals and so on. Now, de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who came here to America to study our prison systems, got caught up with how our government runs at that time. And I've always thought it to be noteworthy. For those of you who do remember this quotation, it's great to go over it again and be reminded of it. For those of you who are not acquainted with it, hopefully it will have the impact that it always does on me every time I read it. De Tocqueville wrote, It is still true, however, that nothing strikes a foreigner on his arrival in America more forcibly than the regard paid to the Sabbath. Now think, if we were to ask that question today of foreigners, what's the first impression or the greatest impression you've gotten of our country? And I remember asking this question to a young man who was working with an evangelist. He was from Australia, working with an evangelist who was working in Africa. And I asked him, I said, what is it about our country that you see that strikes you? And his remark was the attention that we pay to the flag. He says, you know, everywhere I go, there's American flags. Even in the churches, he remarked. I told him why and gave him reasons why we have such veneration for our American flag. That really struck him, that there's American flags everywhere. Excuse me, he wasn't from Australia, he was from Germany. 
he was just taken back by that. But can you imagine asking foreigner after foreigner, even immigrant after immigrant, what strikes you as the most imposing feature of American life? And they said, the way you guys pay attention to the Lord's Day. We're going to see this transition during the message. The way everything shuts down. The way people are attending church services. De Tocqueville will go on to, well, at least somebody went on to write, it may not have been De Tocqueville, to talk about the pulpits that were aflame in righteousness. You know, it's not that long ago that you could go to any church in America, relatively speaking, and pretty much hear the same message on any doctrine, the central doctrines of the Bible. Of course, that's not true anymore. Let me read it again. It is still true, however, that nothing strikes a foreigner on his arrival in America more forcibly than the regard paid to the Sabbath. There is one in particular of the large American cities in which all social movements begin to be suspended even on Saturday evening. You traverse its streets at the hour at which you expect men in the middle of life to be engaged in business and young people in pleasure. And you meet with solitude and silence. Not only have all ceased to work, but they appear to have ceased to exist. Neither the movements of industry are heard, nor the accents of joy, nor even the confused murmur which arises from the midst of a great city. Chains are hung across the streets in the neighborhood of the churches. The half-closed shutters of the houses scarcely admit a ray of sun into the dwellings of the citizens. Now and then you perceive a solitary individual who glides silently along the deserted streets and lanes. Next day, at early dawn, the rolling of carriages, the noise of hammers, the cries of the population begin to make themselves heard again. The city is awake. Now this is the observation of a foreigner from France who wrote, It is still true, however, that nothing strikes a foreigner on his arrival in America more forcibly than the regard paid to the Sabbath. And that refers to the Christian Sabbath, which for us is not Saturday, but Sunday. Those words were written between the years 1841 and 1842. And we'll go down in a little bit and I'll read to you some more from some other Christian preachers who then were arguing and preaching that the Sabbath was being broken more and more and more and that this would end up bad for our country. But we'll get to that. Within the space of less than 30 years, men like Charles Fenney and there was others, were saying that Sabbath breaking is a violation of God's law. And that Christians who truly have the Spirit of God, or as we often refer to, who are filled with the Spirit, don't do those things. And we're going to see that. So let's start out by saying this. Because we're born again, that is not a license given to us to do as we please, to break the law of the Lord. Not the ceremonial law, that has been done away with, but the moral law. We don't have a license under grace to break God's moral law. And that's what it means to be born again, and I'll show that to you in just a moment. We need to come to the realization, as I did some years ago, that is this commandment here, the fourth commandment, that is the glue that holds all the other nine together. For instance, no serious preacher, teacher, theologian, and so on, would advise the people that they lead or teach or those that read their works that now that you're a Christian, it's all by grace, you can kill people. It's okay because God doesn't hold you accountable for that. We don't teach that people can steal because it's all right because now you're a Christian. 
And Christians under the New Testament, New Covenant, can steal because it's all by grace. No one would seriously entertain that thought, whether it was given to them in the form of a doctrine or whether they were just in a church. We don't teach you can take God's name in vain. We don't teach that you can have idols in your life, bow down and worship them. We don't teach that you can go into a court of law and perjure yourself and bear false witness against the accused. We don't teach these things. We don't teach these things. We don't teach that it's all right if you're married to be with another woman or to be with another man. It's all right because you're a Christian and you're under grace. So I have always found it curious why a Christian teacher, preacher, or just the, the average Christian would hold to nine commandments and always talk about ten. I just find it curious in the very way that it's phrased, Ten Commandments. I've actually challenged one or two of my friends to say, you say ten, but you only accent nine. So either we do away with the whole thing, and we tell people that now that you're a Christian, it really doesn't matter what you do. You can commit fornication. You can, again, be with other women. You can be with other men, even though you're married. You can strike people dead, shoot them. It doesn't matter anymore, because whatever you do is all covered by grace. We don't teach that because we know better. And how do we know better? We know it from the book, and we know it from the Holy Spirit given to us who teaches us the book. Then I think to myself, and have over the years, then why is this commandment here always in such debate? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Because it is, after all, one of the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not going to enter into the debate as to the reasons people give, but I've always found them shallow. And again, when occasion was there to say, well, what about the other nine? Oh, no, you can't kill, you can't steal, you can't do... And I would say, why? Why do we discriminate? Why are we prejudiced towards the text? And I'll tell you why. Because it's inconvenient. Again, no serious follower of Christ is going to say that they have now, under grace, a license to kill and to steal and to commit adultery and to blaspheme the name of God and to worship idols and so on. But this one here, it seems to be, intellectually speaking, rather nebulous. A lifestyle option. And the curious thing is many times I come up with these things on my own by meditating in the scriptures. Then I read the theologians, and I'm thinking mostly of older works, and I find that they came to the same conclusion. And that helps me to at least be somewhat assured I'm on the right track, if not altogether correct. It's nebulous. It doesn't seem to have any shape or form. I mean, what difference does it make if you keep the Sabbath day as a holy day or you call it a holiday? That every week you have a holiday. You have opportunity to have a holiday. Instead of waiting for a few days off at Christmas or a few days off at around the Resurrection Sunday, Easter, or whatever other holidays that have been set up for us here in this country and other countries, Fourth of July and so on, you don't have to wait. Because God has ordained from creation, and we're going to see that as well, from the creation of the world, that one day is a day to stop. Stop everything. Stop your working. Stop all of the things that would relate to work. And rest the spirit. Rest your mind. Rest your body. You know, listen, listen. Everybody who is knowledgeable in strength training knows what's called recovery time, which means you take days off is absolutely essential to becoming stronger. Everyone who is serious about strength training knows that principle. Muscles don't grow while they're working. They grow while they're resting after they've been properly worked. And if you really push the envelope, 
If you really are serious about strength training in particular, and you push it to the ceiling, right to the ceiling, the stronger that you get, the more time off you need, the more recovery time you need. Stronger men need more time off, not less. And so there's one principle that I'm going to say everybody understands, everybody doesn't, but many, many do. Bodybuilders and power lifters, Olympic lifters, they know they need this time off. But when it comes to the mind and when it comes to the spirit, and then I'm going to say to the body as well, it seems as though the average person doesn't know this. You've probably heard me say, I'll tell this little story of a pastor friend of mine who I'm thinking that in his ambition to be a good pastor, literally told his congregation, I'm available for you 24-7. And at that time, it may have been a pager he had with him, that anybody could get him any time of day, seven days a week. I can recall not speaking up or out about that to him at the time, somewhat being astonished that anyone would think like that, that you, as a human being, are not in touch with the basic principle of the need for rest, the need to stop, the need to cease, which God, as we see and we're going to see a little further, has established for us as a race of people, not just Christians, as a race of people. A few years later, it wasn't altogether surprising, especially given the times we live in, he fell into adultery. Even though sin is sin, it can happen to anybody. I believe that part of the problem was his constant working, or at least his pretense of constant working. You see, and you know this, I had an evangelist, a friend of mine, one day we were sitting down after a service, he was preaching. He said to me, he said, Brother Ray, he says, have you ever noticed that things are worse at night? And they are. You start off the morning one way and go through the day and it's okay, but as the day goes on, especially as we're adults, but you see it in children too, you can see, at least if you're observant, you can see the fatigue setting in more and more and more. The body is calling for rest. The brain is calling for rest. Those of you who use your brain for work, if you're in IT or you work with computers, or as an accountant or you counsel as I do and read and, read and preach and all the things that I do, you can come to a place where you are just fatigued. And there's a strange doctrine in our land. It's not written, it's not a written code, but an unwritten one. That Americans keep pushing, and the Americans keep pushing. We just keep pushing. And this is a violation not only of God's word, but of common sense. You expect to be healthy, physically healthy, and mentally healthy. But you're going to keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, which is against God's principle, which in this case is a commandment. Don't do that. Don't keep pushing it. But there is an unwritten code of conduct here, I think, in America, maybe now in other countries too, that we can keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And we wonder why our bodies are breaking down, our immune systems are breaking down, why we have chronic fatigue, why you feel tired all the time. In some cases, at least many cases today, it's probably because you are tired. And there's only one solution. When you have hit the wall when it comes to fatigue, there's only one solution, rest. Kids typically, not all, but kids typically hate to take naps. They will fight, and when you say to a child that's old enough to understand what you're talking about, well, it's nap time, they fight against it. So I'm going to say that this is part of our nature, our human nature, the sinful nature. This is part of our nature that we resist rest. And in this country where we're given a license to, let's say, make as much money as we want or just go out and do what has to be done to pay the bills and make ends meet, we just seem to have no limits any longer, but God put a limit on things for us. And keep this in mind, as I've told you many, many times in the past, absolutely nothing that God tells you to do is good for him. 
God has never had an anxiety attack. God has never been depressed. Not once, not ever. God knows the outcome, so he's not worried. He knows that he is self-existent and that no one can touch him or destroy him. So we go through all of this. Nothing that God says for you to do is good for him. Let me just go a little further with this here. Two things, when God tells us to love one another, that's good for you. It's not good necessarily for God. When God says in the book of Hebrews, assuming the Apostle Paul wrote it, he says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves one to another. And we have people all over the place, especially today, that are saying, I don't need to go to a church service. I don't need to be part of a church, which is a misnomer anyway. And God says, yeah, you do. I guess we have to decide. I've already decided. I guess people have to decide whether we as Christians are now accountable by the Spirit of God and the Word of God to nine commandments or to ten. And I would suggest to any of my preacher friends out there who don't believe that the Sabbath day is not only perpetual, but it is to be observed and kept as a holy day, at least be honest enough to tell the people you're speaking to that you only maintain nine commandments. And call them the nine commandments. And if they're on the wall, strike one out. We are, after all, under a new covenant. And that's where the argument begins, but I'm not going to enter into the argument. So de Tocqueville states that nothing struck a foreigner back in 1841, 1842, Nothing would strike a foreigner more forcibly than how Americans behave towards the Sabbath day. Again, the Lord's Day, which is Sunday for us. So let's look at the question. But pastor, we're saved by grace. Let's look at the new covenant. If you have your Bible open, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we have a glimpse of this new covenant, this new testament, which now is simply called Christianity, following Christ, whatever you prefer. This is the prophecy that God gave of what that New Testament would be like. Now, we're 2,000 years past the fulfillment of the prophecy, but let's look at how it was. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34, when God announces that he will make a new covenant beyond and above the Mosaic covenant, which they were under at the time, he announces, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Now notice that phrase. I will put my law inside them and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the the beginning of the New Testament, before Christ came. And notice the words, the law. I will put the law now inside them, so it would no longer be, we see this throughout the New Testament, it would no longer be tablets of stone, but written on the heart, the spirit, it's inside. When you combine the law of the Lord with what every human being has called conscience, you have a powerful connection with the knowledge of right and wrong. The moral law is established by grace, not destroyed. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes along, he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He said, But I say unto you that if a man looks on a woman with sexual intent, immorality, I say to you that he's already committed adultery in his heart. Now, he's not committed adultery, but the intent is there. I believe when Jesus came along, what he did when he put the spirit of himself, the third person of the Trinity, inside of us, it was actually elevated, not diminished. It was elevated. First, it was said you can't commit adultery. He said, now you can't even think about it. 
He said about stealing and so on. And then he goes on to say this. So if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Now that's a hyperbolic statement. It's not designed to be a literal commandment. But Jesus is saying here that sin is so serious. And what I'm saying to you is that now we're past just externals, laws on stone. Now, not only can we not do it, God said you can't even think about it. Interesting to me, at least, how the children of Israel, during this period of the Exodus, had God angry on several occasions. And one that I just want to bring to you as an aside was their constant complaining. We don't like this way. We don't like this waiting for manna. And where's the water? And on and on. And although, if you really look at it, you can see why they came to that conclusion, because there really wasn't any water they could see, and there wasn't any food to eat that they could see. But God would say, listen, you're not going to live by bread alone, water alone, and so forth. You're going to live by every word that I pronounce out of my mouth. And then he says, you know, basically, that I will provide for you in the desert. I will provide for you all of your lives. But his word was not sufficient. They had a sea water, which they didn't. They had a sea manna, which they did very, very infrequently as it was just in the morning. They gathered it and it was gone. There was nothing left. They had to wait until the next morning. Of course, Friday was different. They took up two days' worth. There we have the Sabbath. And God said, now, on Saturday, you don't gather manna because there won't be any. So I'll give you twice as much on Friday. It shows the serious intent of God about this law, this commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But I just want to accent just quickly how God did judge them for their complaining. And I've always thought to myself, starting with myself, by the way, I've always thought to myself, as Americans, and we can talk about some other countries as well, but as Americans, we have so much. Yet I know what reaches my ears, and it's not intentional, it's not in an email or a text message or a phone call. It's just listening to conversation, everything being complained about. When God has said to you, as well as he did to ancient Israel, I will supply for you all along the way. Follow me on the way. That's a requirement. That should be understood. But he says, I will supply for you. Yes, thank you Lord. But what do we hear that comes out of our mouths? This and that and this and that and everything that doesn't please us. And God was so frustrated with Israel at one point, he seriously judged them. He judged them pretty harshly. So we don't want to be found in a place of complaining if you have intellectual challenges with God's fourth law, I would suggest that you just simply always remember that whatever God says for you to do is good for you. And if you've had children, as many of us here have, most times when you spoke to your child, it was something that you were hoping they would receive and do willingly because it was good for them. For something simple like telling your children to avoid drugs. I never did drugs but I know enough about it that it's not good, so you tell your children not to do drugs. That don't mean they don't do it, that don't mean they won't do it, but you're trying to tell them, this is good for you. Older people like myself can give some very good advice on a lot of subjects. Younger people have a tendency to brush it off. It's not wise. Keep in mind that whatever God tells you to do is good for you. That will help you when you have an intellectual challenge as to why we all have these questions. Why, God, and why? And how come and why? You can at least brush that aside as you walk in obedience to the Lord. And in time, and this has been my own experience, in time, I begin to see the wisdom of God. Though I didn't know it when God said, do this, and you do it, and don't do that, and you don't do it. And as time goes on, the wisdom of God, at least in my case, becomes apparent. Oh, now I see. I get it. 
It's a great thing. On the moral law being established by the grace we have in the new covenant, we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, says the apostle, we establish the law. If your Bible is still open, go with me to Romans chapter 6, where it becomes very clear. We cannot abrogate the law and laws of God because we're under a New Testament, but rather it's just the opposite. Because we're under new covenant, because we've been given the Spirit of God, because we have the written Word of God, which very few generations prior to ours ever had, we read these words in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I'm reading off the short list, Ten Commandments. I'm reading off the ones that are most imposing as far as killing. You say, I've never killed anybody, and uh, I don't steal, and all that. That's what the Bible calls sin. We read in 1 John, when you say, well, what is sin? Or people say, what is sin? It's given to us, the explanation, or definition rather, is given to us that it is the transgression of the law. Thou shalt not steal and kill and perjure and take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's called sin. Breaking that law was sin. And the penalty under the law, the Mosaic law, was very, very stiff. It was the death penalty. We say, oh, well, you know, that's why I don't read the Bible, because we judge God. We judge the Creator. And we say, what have you made? And they don't like the way you've made it, so I'm going to do it my way. But the problem with that is that God doesn't negotiate at all. Now, when you come to God to repent of sin, that's different. But God is not going to change the principles because we don't like them. God's not going to change the principles because it makes us feel uncomfortable any more than God's going to change the principles, once again, of what it means to get physically strong. If you want to get physically strong, you have to lift weights. Well, we can say do push-ups, but you get the illustration. And then you have to lift more, heavier, and then heavier. And now you're getting stronger. Aside from injecting yourselves with all types of chemicals, anabolic steroids and performance-enhancing drugs and all these things. There is no way to get stronger but to abide by the principle. Hard work and rest, and of course, nutrition. It's not going to change. That's the principle. And we have all these things in front of us here in the world. Then it comes to God's word. What shall we say then? Shall we put in whatever you want? Shall we commit adultery? Shall we steal? Shall we perjure ourselves in the court of law? Shall we blaspheme God's name? And then keep breaking it down. Shall we be bitter? Shall we be envious? Shall we be complaining people? Just keep on going with it. That God will keep saying it doesn't matter. It's all by grace. The apostle says, no. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 3, Romans 6, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Newness of life is radically different than making a yearly New Year's resolution. This newness of life is the Holy Spirit inside us teaching us. That's what the Spirit of God does. Teaches us. Illuminates the Word. Even as we read in Jeremiah 31, this is how you are able to go into this Bible here. And of course, it's deep, and that's why God provides teachers. But so much of it is just given to you. You have the Spirit of the Lord, and you have the text right here. And so we're not able to go to God and say, I didn't really understand. 
And if we throw in the advances made in modern technology over the last even five years, let alone 20 and 30 years, there's no excuse at all. Audio, video, all types of ways to get to know God through his word. And that is the difference between how one life goes this way and one life goes that way based on the decision made by the will. It is not cannot, it is will not. Let me go back to my illustration since I'm on one train of thought here with physical fitness. Well, you don't want to be a power lifter. You don't want to enter the Olympics. You just want to keep in shape, lose a few pounds. Now, anyone, and I mean literally anyone, after they heard you make an announcement that you're going to lose a few pounds and watching you eat all this food, it doesn't take any science at all to say, I thought you were going to try to lose weight. Oh, yeah, well, I am. This is sort of like a vegetable. <laughs> Cheesecake is nothing like a vegetable. And, you know, all of a sudden, before you know it, you get on a scale, you've gained weight. Because there's laws that regulate the loss of weight, the gaining of muscle mass, and so on. And most everybody here knows that. Then why do we have such a hard time with the Word of God when so much of it appeals to common sense? Because we have been saved, the very sins, in other words, that we repented of, go through that list again in your head, in your mind, and amplify it, if you will. Now God says, you're sorry about what you did? Yes, I am. I'm going to forgive you, so go do whatever you want. That doesn't even make sense. Much of what I've been able to work through in my own brain is just putting it out and saying, this doesn't make sense. If God says, I want you to turn from that sin, and we turn from it, that God says, okay, find out you've turned to it, you can go back to it. That doesn't make sense. And that's what the Apostle Paul is writing. Well, the Holy Spirit's writing it. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Look at verse 11, same chapter, Romans 6. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto... Then again, make it personal or make it more applicable by putting in that sin that so easily besets you. Put in the angry temper. One that misses and escapes so many, many people. And this is what I actually try to get across to those who watch on my daily broadcast, which is dedicated to anxiety and depression. They miss the word fear. We don't see that as... Well, for what it is, it's an exaggerated form of unbelief. We don't like what has happened to us in this world, though as Christians we should understand that whatever comes to us, how to get God's permission. Remember Satan went before God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Take down the hedge. He'll curse you to your face. Well, he never did. But God permitted Satan to have Job for a season, and it wasn't all that pretty. But Job passed the test. That being said... If we understand that whatever is coming to us, God has ordained for us to not only overcome it, but he is going to see us through it, we look at this verse. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto, and again, put something in there. Make it personal. I lose my temper because I am right. Well, everybody feels they're right. Be angry, he says, but sin not. We're all tempted to be angry. But we justify it. Now, here's this one. This is one you're probably going to say, I'm not coming back here anymore. <laughs> it's not okay to be angry with this, that, and the other thing. But in politics, that's different. I gotta, I'm going to be truthful with you. I really don't like seeing what I'm seeing about the way this current president's being treated. And I think those that treat him the way others treated President Trump, and I mean the people on the right, need to understand that you are no different than the people that you criticized four years ago. You see, we're Christians first. American second. I love, I always point to this flag. That was my dad's. 13 years at sea. 
World War II and Korean War vet. He had discharged papers from the Coast Guard as a merchant marine and from the U.S. Army. And all of my uncles, all of his brothers, seven of them, they all served in World War II. My grandmother had eight boys someplace overseas in war. So I'm a patriot, but I never forget Christ is my savior. I'm a Christian first. And that the law of God, the laws of God, and the word of God must proceed and take precedent over any other affinity that I have, including my country. We must understand anger, as one example, is not permissible, though we engage in it, some of us more than others. But the problem there is that we don't acknowledge that I was wrong. The problem is we justify it. Yeah, but why don't we just deal with the fact that this is wrong? Let's put it in fear, because that's even much more subtle. Are you going to blame me for being afraid? I mean, me personally going to blame you for being afraid? Well, no, not necessarily. You know my testimony. I'm out there trying to help people to not be afraid. And it's no easy task. But we fear, 1 John 4, 18, 19, we fear because we're not perfected in the love of God. We don't actually really, truly, deep, deep down believe that God is going to send manna each day. So we check the stock market. And, you know, it goes up and down, and we go up and down, and our emotions go up and down, and there you go. Wall Street is not going to supply your needs. The people in Washington are not going to supply your needs, no matter who is in there. God alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Let's continue. Verse 12, let not sin, again, put in whatever one you want, and I would suggest you put the one that easily besets you. Let not blank, therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, transgressing the law. All right, that's defined in First John. Shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, it's not diminishing, it's accelerating it, it's amplifying it. Because you're under grace. Let me say it this way. Now because you're under grace, there's absolutely no excuse sinning against God. All right, so what do we do here? A little parenthetical statement. What do we do because we know we sin? Okay, well, there's grace for that. There's mercy. But the intent was not to sin. That's important. That's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. My intent was not to think about committing adultery with this woman or this man, but I did. And so God says, all right, well, let's confess it, turn from it, and move on. And that's the grace and the mercy of God. That's what keeps us humble. When we try to justify it, as at least some do, that's when we get into trouble. So, number one, we're not a lawless people because we are under grace. But rather, we need to understand that the times preceding Christ's return would be a time of lawlessness. And that we see every day. I told you I rarely watch the news on television. It's almost never, but my little space at night when I have to relax my mind and I'll put in a movie I've recorded or something that I know is not going to offend my sensibilities. Many of them are movies I've watched probably a hundred times. Just noise in the background while I'm trying to rest. Last night, I'm watching yesterday some rallies going around here in New York State about a woman's right to reproduction. That's all I read was the banner. It had the sound off. And I said, yeah, they have a right to reproduce. What's the problem? It is kind of an interesting twist, isn't it? What they really mean is that I have a right to have an abortion. But workers today are being fired because of a mandate to take a vaccine. Now, where's the logic? See, logic is thrown out the window. But let me say something to you. All of these have come on us because we have broken the laws of God. And so we look at this one and we look at that group and that political party. And God says, why don't you look a little higher and realize that all have sinned 
and fallen short of my glory. And these things are coming upon you because it's written that they would. Man doesn't even have today the ability to reason correctly, to string things out logically. If a woman has a right to do whatever she wants with her own body, that same woman could go into a hospital somewhere and be mandated to get a vaccine or get fired. Which, by the way, if we go even further with that, then we can say, well, as you fire all these workers, then the governor or somebody's going to come out and say, we're in a real crisis here in the hospitals. Yeah. Lawlessness. Matthew 24, 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many who profess to love God shall grow wax cold. We need to look at this word here, anomia, and it's the Greek word underneath iniquity. It means lawless. Let me give you the proper definition. The condition of one without law, either because ignorant of it or because violating it. Jesus said, because lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. What does that mean? It means that people professing to love God will go in amongst the lawless and themselves become violators of the law of God, which we just read that we don't and we can't because we're dead to it. We're dead to sin. No, we're not dead to the law. We're dead to sin. And so we read in James 4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Is that really any way for a Christian preacher to talk? Come on. Where's the love around here? Well, James was Jesus' actual brother. He uses some very provocative language. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, I quote that verse to say, if lawlessness is now with us, as no one would argue that, I don't think. Lawlessness. Get those Ten Commandments off the wall. It's unconstitutional. Well, what they're really saying is we don't want to see them. This is provoking me to know that I am a sinner. Noah's flood never happened. Scientifically, you can't prove it. Scientifically, you can prove it. But we don't want it. We don't listen to it. We don't acknowledge it because it reminds us that God judged the world. And we don't want to be reminded of that. So we'll make our own way. I want to read to you from, without a doubt, who was one of the most imposing figures of that 19th century where I was reading to you from de Tocqueville. Only a few short 27 or so years later, Charles Finney came along and had great revivals all around us here. Historic. They say, and I can't validate this, but they say that Charles Finney's converts stayed truer to the Lord than any other evangelist. I can't validate that, but I've read it. Utica, Rome, Schenectady. He was here in Amsterdam, Charles Finney. He was the leading figure, the most prominent figure in the Second Great Awakening. Listen to what he wrote about the Fourth Commandment. In his lectures on revival, he wrote, If the church wishes to promote revivals, she must sanctify the Sabbath. There is a vast deal of Sabbath breaking in the land. Now, you can actually make a sermon on that back 100 plus years ago. Merchants break it. Travelers break it. The government breaks it. He wrote, and this is 1868, a few years ago an attempt was made in the western part of this state, it's New York, to establish and sustain a Sabbath-keeping line of boats and stages. This is the transportation for your goods. But it was found that the church would not sustain the enterprise. Many professors of religion would not travel in these stages and would not have their goods forwarded in canal boats that would be detained from traveling on the Sabbath. At one time, Christians were much engaged in petitioning Congress to suspend the Sabbath mails, the delivery of your mail. Christian churches writing to the congressman, saying, we want these to stop because we're going to observe the Lord's Day. 
And now they seem to be ashamed to even ask the congressman, like, can we talk about having Sundays shut down by the government? Keep in mind, if you go back and do your own research, look on the original constitutions of the states, especially the 13 colonies. Right in the constitution it's written, the Sabbath is an inviolable day. Interesting. And so he goes on to write this, this is 1868, one thing is most certain, unless something is done, and done speedily, and done effectually, to promote sanctification of the Sabbath by the church, the Sabbath will go by the board, it'll go away. And we shall not only have our mails running on the Sabbath and post offices open, but by and by our courts of justice and halls of legislation will be kept open on the Sabbath. Then he asks this question, and what can the church do? What will this nation do without any Sabbath? The irony, I think, of what Finney wrote here is how far off he was about the extent of what happened when these so-called blue laws, which disappeared in my age, the baby boomers, we saw the sun set. When we were young, us baby boomers, when we were young, the stores were still closed, most. You still couldn't get gas and all these things. And then all of a sudden, one day, the sun just set. And now what do we have? 24-7, even pastors, like the one I mentioned. I'm here 24-7. That's a ridiculous idea. Absolutely ridiculous. But this is how we're thinking at the moment. The irony is that he just saw it as something will be getting mail delivered on Sunday, which happens now. And courts of justice and halls of legislation would be open, which also happens now. I don't think he was able to entertain the magnitude of how breaking this one law has affected us. You say, what's so important about it? Well, it's not just the rest. It's the assembling of ourselves so that we are once again reminded of the Creator. We are once again reminded of His principles. And we have things coming on us now, including diseases. Remember, I preached this a few weeks ago, none of these diseases. We have diseases coming on us, and we don't even know why. We don't even know how we're getting them. All because God said, don't do it. Keep yourself strong. That's implied. Keep your spirit strong in the Lord. That's also implied, but stated further in the scriptures in Exodus 20. We have this given to us for us. And it's not, I cannot do it. It's, I will not do it. One of the things that I want to bring out to you that I think is critical is that the giving of the Sabbath was Saturday in the Old Testament. Sunday for us, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ in the New Covenant, has been known since man was created. So it's not a question of, quote, religion, Christian or otherwise. It's a creation principle. Let me read these to you. These were put together by a man by the name of Heman Humphrey. He was a very imposing author. He was a very imposing clergyman, president of Amherst College, graduate of Yale University, and so on. He writes these things about the Sabbath being a creation principle. Homer and Hesed both speak of the seventh day as holy. Pophory says the Phoenicians consecrated one day in seven as holy. Philo says the Sabbath is not a festival peculiar to any one people or country, but is common to all the world, and that it may be named the general and public feast, or the feast of the nativity of the world. In other words, the celebration of the world's birthday. Creation. Josephus. Jewish historian affirms there is no city either of Greeks or barbarians or any other nation where the religion of the Sabbath is not known. So that's beyond Judaism, certainly beyond Christianity. It's known to the whole world. Lempidius tells us that Alexander Severus, the Roman emperor, usually went the seventh day into the temple of the gods, there to offer unto the gods. Grotius says, the memory of the creation being performed in seven days was prepared not only among the Greeks and Italians, but among the Celts and Indians, of whom divided their time into weeks. 
Then he went on to say the same is affirmed of the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Gauls, the Britons, and the Germans. The fact is the Sabbath was not simply something Jewish. And that's what we hear today taught in theology. That related to the Jews. It's not true. It was a creation principle known from the foundation of the world, instilled into the, I'll say, conscience of humanity. I said to you earlier that nothing that God says to us is good for him. So again, I want to just give you this little quote. Heman Humphrey also wrote a booklet on the observance of the Lord's Day, how important it is. I want you to listen to his words. The utility and importance of the Christian Sabbath its immediate advantages are seen to be numerous and great, for it offers timely and needful rest to all the laboring classes of society. So there's common sense. Everybody needs a day off, and it's going to be the day that God has selected. For Christians, it's Sunday. It promotes cleanliness and ministers in a very high degree to health and intellectual improvement. It kindly remembers the working animals. And that's an interesting perspective that we don't think about. I know none of you here own a farm, but some of you grew up on one. And God's saying, these animals need rest. And God provided for that. He kindly remembers the working animals and releases them one day in seven from their toils. It divides time into portions, highly convenient for the transaction of worldly business. By the way, is it only me and my age? Or do you get up many mornings and say, what day is this? And I don't think it's just my age. It's a blur. Every day is the same. It's busyness is all the same. But when we have that one stop, the Lord's Day, again for us, the resurrection of Christ, we have that one stop, then we know, oh, it was Monday, because yesterday I was in church services, and not just, well, for us, it's two hours in church, but I took the whole day. I was reading the scriptures, had a season of prayer. When my children were at home, we would open up the Bible and have what's called a family altar. It divides time into portions highly convenient for the transaction of worldly business and thus helps to regulate the various intercourse of a great community. It restores the man of a thousand cares and perplexities, and that's in 1860. How many complexities could a man in 1868 have compared to now? The world is, to me, very complex. Not complicated, complex. Everything coming at you. It brings more gain to individuals and to the public than could possibly be derived from unremitting application to secular employments. By its weekly return, it rebukes our worldliness. I read to you from James 4.4. Friendship with the world is to be enemy of God. This here, Heman Humphrey says, the Sabbath rebukes our worldliness by bringing the rich and poor so often together to worship God and receive instruction from his word it tends exceedingly to remove prejudices, soften asperities, and elicit kindly feelings, to check the growth of pride, avarice, and sensuality. Let me say this as a parenthetical statement as well. In my opinion, we are literally selling out America to other countries, one in particular, for money. Avarice. I can gain an advantage in my business over you by using these people over here who are our sworn enemies. You know, Khrushchev once said of communism during his day, he says, we will sell America the rope they will hang themselves with. At the moment, he was not too far away from the truth. What people will do for money, they'll sell out their country, and then make some rational excuse as to, well, I wasn't selling out America. Yes, you are. You're selling us out. For what? I mean, if a million dollars isn't enough, does it really have to be a billion, five billion, ten billion? And I'm not here to say how much a person should make, but I am here to talk about greed, avarice, you're selling out the nation. You're selling us all out. 
so you can get richer, and you can write books, and you can tell us what we should and shouldn't do. Well, thankfully, Christ is coming, and that day is going to end as well. The Sabbath, on the other hand, he says, is to encourage truth and temperance, that's self-control, brotherly kindness and charity, in addition to its mighty influence upon our eternal interest. Eternal interest. How many sermons can you turn on today on the radio, on the television, and hear somebody talk about heaven or hell? It's exceptionally low. Exceptionally low. But we were ordained to come here and be reminded of God's word and what's really at stake. And your success is not what's really at stake. It's where you're going to spend eternity. That's what's at stake. It is a far surer guarantee, Humphrey wrote, for the perpetuity of our free institutions. Our country being a free institution or freedom in our country depends on the keeping of the Sabbath than all the physical resources of the country. In short, it is the true palladium. That means it's the solution which protects the temple of liberty as well as the Ark of the Covenant. With the sincere Christian, the case is widely different. Aside from the authority of God, a sober conviction of the public utility of any institution must, of course, powerfully influence his practice. Or indeed, can we see how any real patriot, you'll see this a lot in early writings in America, Christianity and patriotism linked together. Not this generation's type of Christianity, that type of Christianity right there. And nor indeed can we see how any real patriot can trample upon an institution which he recognizes as a blessing to his country. And that's about the fourth commandment. You would be well served to do your own research and look at our history, history of America, and see what part the Lord's Day played in influencing thinking. For instance, the Second Great Awakening, this is a religious revival, right? People are coming out. Now, look it. Let's face it. We see people coming out and filling up basically stadiums. We see people, you know, doing all kinds of things and great music and all that, but very little change in our country for the good. And it just keeps rolling on towards evil and wickedness. Why is that? Because it's not enough just to look at scriptures, but we have to do it. We have to do it. And in this case, we must take the fourth commandment and we must look at it and say it is still obligatory and it is perpetual as many writers and authors in years gone by have observed. In any case, it is one of the Ten Commandments. If we reduce it down to a personal level, it's simply good for you. If God would grant us what we are praying for, a third great awakening in America, it's good for everybody. If we could see the type of revivals in the first great awakening and then the second great awakening, and if we could see a third great awakening in America, which I truly believe there are principles that we follow to forward that, but God alone has got to give the green light and say, go. And souls are truly saved. I just look at, I want to exhort you once again. You remember in Isaiah where it says, say not a confederacy to this people which say a confederacy. What was he talking about? Conspiracy. Get away from the Facebook. Get away from the social media. Not altogether. I use it to say hi to friends. I use it to put up my devotions just about every single night, a few nights go by, every morning. Beyond that, I don't get much good information. But I do when I do my own research, and I go through things, and certainly when I pay attention to this book. Here, God makes me wiser than my teachers, wiser than my enemies, wiser than the ancients, because God wrote it. As we go to prayer this morning, let's consider the things that we've heard, and certainly this is barely opening the door to this subject but let's consider our ways. Let's go before the Lord. And it's one thing to sing about, let the reign of your presence be on me everywhere I go and everywhere I walk. It's another thing to actually possess it. 
To have God's presence be with us everywhere we go means peace, it means security, it means confidence. I told you the Spartans, when they heard the enemy was coming, never said how many. They always said, where? And the Christians should have that spirit plus some. So let's go before the Lord. Father, we come before you today, and as I study and as I research, as I listen, as I watch, as I observe, I see more and more how much ground we have lost over almost two centuries now. How much we've given up. Founders of this country came with the great dream of freedom for men, but they were also smart enough to understand that if the people were not moral, that freedom couldn't last. And then again, we're fulfilling the scriptures when we look at you, Lord Jesus, and we see the lawlessness of our society, and we see the love for you growing colder by people who once professed you. They want convenience. They want preachers who will preach convenience and give them their conveniences. At a time when we need discipline, people say, give me comfort, but help us, God. In that one respect of the spirit of the Spartans, never to be afraid of the enemy to say, how many, how much? God, today, help us to understand these little foxes we call sin, or you call sin, rather. We just justify it. We just say, well, I'm only human. Well, you know me. Well, my father was that way. Instead of saying, God, forgive me. God, touch me. God, help me. Lord, today help us to turn to you and to your word, because I've come to understand that without you redirecting things, not much of what we do is going to be of any help. But if you, by your spirit, touch, and you turn things around, we can once again walk safely at night in the streets of America without having the fear of being kidnapped or children being kidnapped or killed. God help us, as I know others not only in America but around the world are praying and petitioning you, Grant us what we understand the word of God to say, that in the last days you'll pour out of your spirit upon all flesh. And the covenant you announce here in Jeremiah, as well as Ezekiel and other places as far back as Deuteronomy and even the book of Genesis, we will see it with our eyes. Help us, God, not to faint, but rather to see the glory of the Lord in the land of the living. And God, help us when we give you praise that it is truly pleasing to your ears. Or when we sing that the rain of your presence fall on me, it actually does. And we know in you, it's going to be all right. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. For you are truly great, greatly to be praised. I didn't mention in the message, I meant to and I didn't. um, Let me just talk to you just very quickly as we finish about adrenaline addiction. Not only dopamine addiction, but adrenaline addiction. In some ways, I say we as Americans, we're addicted to the adrenaline. The average person goes through YouTube videos, a couple, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, they're done, they're off to something else. They can't even pay attention to a lesson because the attention span is shot by addiction to a constant need for stimulation. God is saying, cease, stop, remember me, study to live a quiet life. This is what the book says. So remember to pray for one another. Remember that God's commands are always given for your good, for my good. And with the help of God, Let us be the ones that actually do it. So God, we thank you once again. Bless you for this day. It is certainly the day that you have made. We therefore not only can but should rejoice and be glad in it. And I pray all these things today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.